just a moment. But let's begin reading in Mark chapter number 1, verse number 1. We'll read down to verse number 11. The holy, inspired, preserved Word of God says this, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John did baptize in the wilderness, and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And there went out unto him all the land of Judea, and they of Jerusalem, and were all baptized of him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and with a girdle of a skin about his loins. And he did eat locusts and wild honey and preached, saying, There cometh one mightier than I after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. I indeed have baptized you with water. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. And straightway, coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens open and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. There came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this opportunity to be in your house. I pray that the uh, Word of God would have force and power and liberty in our hearts and in our midst today. Lord, we know that if we walk away from here unchanged, it's not been because you can't change us. It's not been because the Word of God is not capable, but it's been because we've closed our hearts and our minds from you. And I just pray, Lord, that we'd not do such a thing. I pray that we would open our hearts and minds to the truth of God's Word. I pray that we would open our lives unto its examination. And, Father, that we would walk away from here not only challenged, but changed uh, for your glory, for your honor. Lord, we love you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The very first verse of the Gospel of Mark reads this way, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is unusual in that it does not contain anywhere in the book of Mark a genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, Matthew contains a genealogy through his stepfather, uh, Joseph, and uh, Joseph's genealogy traces all the way back to Solomon. Luke contains the genealogy of Jesus Christ, but through the uh, Mary, his mother, and it traces all the way back to Nathan, the son of David. And there's a reason, by the way, for both of those things. Normally, you wouldn't reckon a genealogy by the mother. You would reckon it by the father. In fact, normally a mother would not even have any mention uh, in a genealogy. But through Joseph's genealogy, that traces him back to Solomon. And there's a fella in that genealogy, one of the descendants of Solomon by the name of Jehoiakim who was a wicked king and who, because of his wickedness, God had sworn that never would there be a descendant of Jehoiakim that would sit upon the throne of Israel. And by the way, God kept his promise because there wasn't. We know that Joseph was not the father of Jesus. He was, we might call him the stepfather or the stand-in father in the raising. We know that the father of the Lord Jesus is none other than God the Father. Mary, however, is also a proper descendant of David and therefore could bear the scepter of, uh, of descendancy. Uh, she comes from the line of David's son, Nathan. You see, God's providence and grace, uh, it never fails. God knows exactly what He's doing. But you'll not find a genealogy as we think of a genealogy 
in John's gospel or in Mark's gospel. And there's a reason for this, because each of the four gospels present the Lord Jesus in a different light and in a different way. Matthew presents him as the king of kings and as the king of Israel, and that's why it's traced back through Joseph. Uh, Mark presents him as the servant of God and the servant of man. Luke presents him as the son of man, and that's why, by the way, uh, the genealogy through uh, Luke's gospel traces all the way back to Adam. John presents him as the Son of God and the Savior of men. And the, uh, because of that, there is no genealogy proper, as we like to think of in the book of John. Instead, John begins this way, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And then down in verse 14, we learn how that relates to the Lord Jesus Christ, because it says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we beheld His glory, like as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So there is a sort of genealogy, but not as we're familiar with genealogies. The same thing is true in Mark's gospel. Uh, In uh, John's gospel, the Lord Jesus' earthly ministry in life is presented as being sourced in eternity. Uh, Before the world was, He was. He was in the beginning. But in Mark's gospel, because it presents Him as the servant of God and servant of man, the story of the Lord Jesus begins with His public ministry. And it begins by saying, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You might say, well, preacher, why is there no genealogy? Because a servant's ancestry doesn't matter. All that matters is that the servant does what he's called and commanded to do. And so the earthly genealogy of the Lord Jesus is not presented. You'll say, well, there it is, preacher. It skips over the Christmas story. There is no genealogy. There is no birth record. There is no nativity scene. But listen, friend, I think if we look a little closer we'll find that the spirit of Christmas is present even in these verses. There are four components that I want to give to you this morning, and we'll spend a little time on each of them. And they are at the very heartbeat of what the Christmas story is about. The first that we'll look at is the proclamation of the gospel. If it were not for Calvary, Bethlehem would have no meaning. Second, we'll look at the providence of God. One cannot read the Christmas story without being awestruck by how perfect the Lord's wisdom and counsels and providence are. God did things in just the right way. We'll find that there's a component present in both stories. In uh, this passage, we'll find a preacher girded in camel's hair. In Luke's account, we'll do some comparison between the two, we find shepherds abiding in the field. But both of them were tasked with proclaiming the presence of the Messiah. And then finally, we'll look at this morning the participation of the Godhead. One of the great themes in the Christmas story is that every uh, person of the Godhead, all three, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, all three had a part in the birth of Christ. We'll find that all three, too, had a part in the birth of the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's begin by considering the proclamation of the gospel in verse number 1. It's as plain as ink on paper. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But I want you to notice with me, first off, the topic that is mentioned. It is not merely the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus Christ. It's not merely the beginning of the life of Jesus Christ. It's not merely the beginning of the uh, ministries and lives of the apostles. But rather, the topic of John or of Mark's gospel uh, is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The story that is presented in the book of Mark 
is that of the Lord Jesus Christ coming to earth, walking amongst men, taking upon Himself our sins, dying in our place, and rising again in power and in victory. By the way, this is part of the reason that uh, Bible corruptors, if we can use that term, and people that put out perverse versions of the Bible, uh, people that put out uh, lies and, and disinformation hate the book of Mark. Uh, one of the things they always try to do is take out the last 12 verses of the book of Mark. Uh, that's one of the great... If you've got an NIV Bible, you can look at it. There'll be a little footnote somewhere in your NIV at the end of Mark chapter number 12. Used to, they just take it all the way out. But now, if you look by the last 12 verses of the book of Mark, you'll find a little footnote to undermine the authenticity and veracity of Scripture. And it'll say this, that these last 12 verses were not found in the most ancient manuscripts. Listen, I got news for you. You take the last 12 verses out of the book of Mark, and the book of Mark is an incomplete story with no message, with no power, with no meaning... Uh, not to mention the fact that just because it's oldest, that don't mean it's best. Now, some of y'all ain't going to like that I said that. Amen. But just because... Let me try that again. You all right? Just because it's old, that don't mean it's right. It's okay. If you feel like you're too old to say amen to that, that's fine. But just because it's oldest doesn't mean that it's right. And they'll say the oldest manuscripts... Listen, I don't have, I've got too much preaching to be preaching on that this morning. But suffice it to say that the last 12 verses of the book of Mark belong right exactly where God put them in my King James Bible. They belong right there. They bear testimony and witness to the physical, bodily, literal, powerful, mighty, miraculous resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. If Listen, if He's not risen, don't none of it mean anything. So the topic, the theme behind the book of Mark is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it should be no wonder that the Christmas story be found here. For listen to what the angel said unto the shepherds. The angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you, listen to this phrase, good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. What Christmas was about is the good tidings. The word gospel literally means good news, good tidings. We find this correlation even closer in Isaiah 52, 7, when the Lord says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Listen now, thy God reigneth. The heartbeat of the gospel, the heartbeat of the Christmas story, is that Christ was incarnate robed in flesh, conquered death, hell, and the devil through his death, bore our sins, rose powerful, mighty, victorious over it all, and is alive and powerful to save today. That's what the gospel is all about. That's what the Christmas story is all about. You take away the shepherds, the manger, the star, the wise men. You take away the name Bethlehem, and at its very heart, the book of Mark begins the same way that the book of Luke begins by telling us the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then I'd like for you to notice the titles that are used here. The topic is the beginning of the gospel. But what gospel is it? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We find in this three distinct titles are given. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We're used to hearing these in one uh, 
breath and in one statement. And so it's lost on us the impact and significance of each of these names or titles that are given. But in them, we find a threefold testimony to the truth of the Christmas story. First, I'd like for you to notice the title of his name. His name is Jesus. You remember whenever the angel uh, said to Mary, Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. The angel in Matthew chapter number 1 said to Joseph, She shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. The name Jesus has become very familiar to us today. Thank the Lord for that. But let it never be lost on us. What a unique, what a spectacular title that is. For it bears testimony to all of God's redemptive plan. Jesus means Jehovah is salvation. And that's what the Christmas story is about. It's about Jehovah giving salvation unto His people Israel and unto the world at large. This is what Simeon recognized when he held the Christ child in his arms and said, Behold, the salvation of the Lord God. The title of his name, Jesus. Then the title of his nobility. He's not just Jesus, he's Jesus Christ. The word Christ is not a proper name, but it is a title. And it literally means the chosen of God. It's equivalent with the idea of the Messiah. So whenever Mark says we're talking about Jesus Christ, he says, listen, we're not talking about just any Jesus. We're not talking about uh, the, the bar Jesus that's mentioned in the book of Acts. We're not talking about the Jesus that's mentioned by the high priest when they said there was a man named Jesus that led people astray. We ain't talking about the Jesuses that are walking around in the world today. We're talking about a very distinct person. He's not just Jesus. He's Jesus Christ. He's the chosen of God. He's the anointed one. He's the Messiah. He's who who Isaiah calls the servant of the Lord. And this truly is the office and ministry of the Lord Jesus. Remember what the Bible says in Luke chapter 2 verse 11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. He's the chosen of God. There's no one like Jesus Christ. There's no one. There's a lot of good preachers in the world today. Uh, There were a lot of good prophets in years past in the Old Testament. And prior to the cross of Calvary, there were good apostles in the early church during the apostolic age. But there's never been anybody like Jesus. He is He is in a class by Himself. He's part and parcel and of nature different than anybody else that's ever walked the earth. He is separate from sinners, the Hebrews writer says. There's none like Him. He's not just chosen, He's the chosen one. You hear people talk all the time, I don't have time for this, but I'm going to preach it anyway. You hear people talk all the time about the elect. You ever hear people talk about that? There's Calvinists that would like us to believe that God's picking out a baseball team, and He's got a first and a second and a third string. And they'll talk about, well, maybe you're part of God's elect or you're not. Do you know you'll only find that term elect one time in the Old Testament? And it ain't talking about you and it ain't talking about me. It's in the book of Isaiah and it's talking about the servant of the Lord. He is the one that is God's elect. He is the one that is God's chosen. And if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You say, preacher, how do you become part of the elect? By receiving of your own free will choice, Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's how you become part of the elect. Ain't nobody elect but Jesus. And those that are in Jesus Christ... 
because they've made their free will choice, because they've accepted Him as their Savior, because they claimed their place as part of the whosoever will. I'm one of those whosoever wills. They're in Jesus Christ. They're in the elect because He is elect. He is the Christ child. But then notice there is the title, not only of His name and His nobility, but there is the title of His nature. He's Jesus Christ. And what does that mean? It means He's the Son of God. The Son of God. Now, the the overall tenor of Mark's gospel is not to present Him as the Son of God. But Mark doesn't want to let one verse of Scripture pass before he marks out the territory, draws a line in the sand, and says, let me tell you exactly who I'm talking about when I talk about Jesus Christ. I'm talking about the Son of God. The very essence of the Christmas season is encapsulated in the divinity of Christ. I would suggest this to you, and I'm not trying to be hard-nosed, But I believe I have good scriptural ground for this. That if you don't accept the divinity and deity of Jesus Christ, you got no business celebrating Christmas. That's what it's about. It's a holy day. It is a day that is set aside and set apart for the worship of the Son of God, God the Son. See, it has no meaning. It has no purpose. It has no import if He's not who He says He was. And He said very plainly that He was the Son of God. He's not just a good man, not just a good teacher. He is God in the flesh. Emmanuel doesn't just mean a servant with us. It doesn't just mean a preacher with us. It doesn't just mean a prophet with us. It doesn't just mean an apostle with us. Emmanuel means God with us. And the title Son of God reveals and reminds to us, reveals to us and reminds us of the fact that He was God in the flesh. No part of His divinity was corrupted, was mingled, was uh, was belittled, was degraded in any way, shape, fashion, or form. He told Philip, uh, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Listen, when He saved you, that was God that saved you. When He died for you, that was God that died for you. Not just a preacher, not just a religious figure. He's Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I see the proclamation of the gospel in verse 1. In verse 2 and 3, I cannot help but notice the providence of God. Now, when we read in Luke's account, we are awestruck by the great pains to which God literally rearranged the pieces of the world to prepare the way for His Son. When you consider the advent of the Roman Empire and the dominance of them and all that that brought with it, the uh, Pax Romana, the peace of Rome that enabled for people to travel and people to be able to go unaccosted from place to place so that a census could take place. The Lex Romana, the law of Rome that enabled them uh, to be able to even call for a universal census. When you consider the roads of Rome that had been built, uh, whereby if they hadn't been built, they could have never traveled from Nazareth to Bethlehem in the time that was needed. And then God literally pulled the heartstring of the greatest emperor in the world, the greatest leader in the world at that time, and told Caesar Augustus, now is the time to call for a census. Now is the time when all the world must be taxed. 
You consider how that God's providence working in Rome and outside of Rome dovetailed with the appearance of the star in the east that brought wise men from afar. You think about the providence of God that was at play, that filled up that end, uh, that the prophecy that is told us that he was born amongst the poor and amongst the rejected would be fulfilled in that he would uh, find no room, no place at the end and be laid in a manger. All of these things, only God could have brought all these things to pass the way that he did. Statisticians will give you big figures far above my pay grade with more zeros than you could fill a room with that will tell you the unlikelihood of any person throughout human history fulfilling even one of these prophecies at the exact moment in time that they must be fulfilled. And yet in Jesus Christ we have every prophecy that was given of Him fulfilled and brought into realization. The providence of God cannot be denied And yet we find in this passage a different sort of providence. It is the providence of God. But it's not the providence of God in preparing the world. It's the providence of God in preparing the way. For it says in verse number 2, As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. This is a quote from Isaiah chapter number 40, the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in a desert, in the desert a highway for our God. God was not only preparing the world at large, but he was preparing Israel as a nation to receive their Messiah. Now they made the choice to reject him as Messiah. But it's astonishing to consider. Can I, can I bring something to your mind? You know, to this day when Jews, when they celebrate the, the Passover... Uh, They set an extra cup out and an extra dinner plate and they have an empty chair, Orthodox Jews. And the reason they do that is because the book of Malachi closes with a prophecy saying that before the Messiah comes, Elijah would appear. And to this day, Orthodox Jews still set that cup and that plate and that chair out representative of their hope and of their belief that Elijah will show up and will herald the coming of the Messiah. You know that one day the Jews brought this to the attention of the Lord Jesus. He was claiming that He was the Messiah. He is, in fact, the Messiah. And they said, well, you know, Master, the Bible says before the Messiah comes, Elijah must come. And He said this to them. He said, if you had received John the Baptist, he would have been Elijah for you. Now, I don't want to get in too deep of waters this morning. I didn't bring my hip waders. Amen? But I believe this, that when God reported and declared and heralded the coming of the kingdom to Israel through the preaching of John and through the preaching of Jesus. I don't believe God was bluffing. I believe had Israel accepted their Messiah, then the kingdom would have been ushered in at that moment. Now you say, well, preacher, what would have that meant for everything? I don't know what it would have meant for everything. That's not how God in His providential wisdom planned things out. But I believe that He was being sincere when He said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I believe had they received John's witness and not beheaded him, I believe had they received the witness of the Lord Jesus Christ and not crucified Him and not rejected Him and believed and, and received what He had said, I believe the kingdom could have been set up at that moment. Do you know why I believe that? Because God had providentially prepared both in the things He had declared through His Word, in the ministry of John, and also in the, in the hearts of Israel, everything that was necessary for them to receive the Messiah. The only thing, you say, well, preacher, what went wrong then? Mankind made the choice. Light came into the world. Listen now. But men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. We see the providence of God in preparing the way. 
we see the providence of God in the prophesied word. As we've already said, John is prophesied in the book of Isaiah chapter number 40. But he's also mentioned in Malachi chapter number 3, verse 1. Malachi said, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. God had prophesied the coming of His Son Jesus Christ into this world. And we see the providence of God, the the thumbprint, the fingerprint, the signature of God in every instance around both the birth of Jesus Christ in the book of Luke and also the advent of His earthly public ministry in Mark chapter number 1. This is one of the heartbeats of the Christmas season. Notice a little further. Not only do we see the proclamation of the gospel, the providence of God, but we see the preacher girded in camel's hair. Now, some of you are saying, oh, now, wait a minute, preacher. You ain't never going to show me John the Baptist in Luke chapter number two. He just ain't there. He ain't there. He's in, he's in his mama's womb. He just ain't there. He can't be in Luke chapter number two. No, he's not in Luke chapter number two, at least not in the way that he is in Mark chapter number one. But I do believe that we find a similarity between the office of John and the ministry of John and that of the shepherds listed in Luke chapter number 2. Listen to what the Bible says about John in Mark chapter number 4. It says, John did baptize in the wilderness. Notice his sanctuary. John did not preach his message in the synagogues. John did not preach his message in the temple. John did not preach his message in the palaces. John's sanctuary, John's church was in the wilderness. That was where he preached his message. And where do we find the shepherds in Luke chapter number 2? They're not in the palaces. They're not in the synagogues. They're not in the temple. In all the places that you'd expect to find the message of God, instead, they're abiding in the field. Say, preacher, what does that mean to me? Well, it ought to mean a lot to you and me because the fact is, if God would use John, if God would use the shepherds, then just maybe God would use you and me to herald the truth of the gospel as well. We see his sanctuary, verse number 4, the end of it says this, And he preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. We see his sermon. And some of you say, well, that's very different from what the angels preached in Luke chapter number 2. Yes and no. Listen to what they said. The angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings, the gospel, of great joy, which shall be to all people. John's message was this, that all men are sinners and all ought to come and be baptized for the remission of sins. The angel's message uh, to the shepherds in Luke chapter number 2 is just the other side of that coin. That the good news, if John was preaching judgment, if John was preaching the impending chastening of God, then the angels were preaching the other side. That the good news is that though we may be sinners, though we may all of us need to repent and turn towards God, if we'll do so, there's good tidings of great joy to all people, that God will, by the sacrifice of Christ, forgive us and save us of our sins. The sermon may have been different, but in a lot of ways it was similar. We see in John or in Mark chapter number 1, verse 5, we see John's success. It says, There went out unto him all the land of Judea, and they of Jerusalem were all baptized of him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. And we find success in the ministry of the shepherds. The Bible says in Luke 2, 18, All they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. I found this to be true. If we set our heart on sharing the truth of Jesus Christ, God will always give us an audience. It may not be as big as we wish. It may not be the, the type that we would hope for. But if we'll make our mind up that we're going to tell folks about Christ, God will always put people in our path. 
that are willing and ready to hear the message. We see not only his success in verse 6, we see his simplicity. The Bible says John was clothed with camel's hair, with a girdle of skin about his loins, and he did eat locusts and wild honey. I've heard people say when it says locusts, it ain't talking about bugs, it's talking about plants. Say, so what do you think, preacher? I don't really care. Amen? <laughs> There's been a lot of times I would have chose a, a grasshopper over a salad. Somebody say amen to that. At least you get some protein. But the intent, the spirit behind what's being said here is that John was not a man that was polished, that lived in the lap, a lap of luxury. John was a man that roughed it, that lived in the wilderness. John was a man who was simple in his life. And we're reminded once again that it was not to the kings and the emperors of the world that that great heralding of the birth of Christ came, but to simple shepherds. Verse number 7, we see John's Savior. He says this, And preach, saying, There cometh one mightier than I, after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. John said, it ain't about me, but there's been a Savior that's been born, and He is the one that it's all about. John said, hey, I must decrease, but He must increase. It ain't about me, folks. You may be coming out and hearing my message now, but there's one coming after me, and I'm not even worthy to tie His shoes. He's so much mightier than I am. This was the Shepherd's song, Luke chapter 2, verse 11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. In case you hadn't learned it yet, this whole thing's all about Jesus Christ. It ain't about you. It ain't about me. It ain't about my name. It ain't about Wall Ridge. It ain't about any other church. If it's about any of those things, it means nothing. It must be about Jesus Christ. I'm not going to go into a bunch of details. This has been a rough week. And the devil's attack tried to attack the name of our church this past week. And I had to just remind myself, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery uh, to be equal with God. The Bible says, but made himself of no reputation. Uh, we get all obsessed about our reputation. Christ made himself of no reputation. A lot of people told things and lied about John. John said, that don't matter. I'll decrease as long as Jesus increases. In case you ain't learned it, it ain't about you and me. It ain't about our church. It ain't about me. It ain't about the ministry. It's all about Jesus Christ. If we can just lift Him up, then we'll do what God's called us to do. I see His Savior. And then I see His summary in verse number 8. He said, I indeed have baptized you with water, but He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. The angel said, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. That's a description of what would be accomplished through the cross of Calvary. John said, I can baptize you with water, but there's coming one after me, and he's going to baptize you with something different. He's going to baptize you in the Holy Ghost. And you can believe what you want to about that. We can fuss and fight and argue about it until we get to heaven and you learn I was right. But at the end of the day... I believe that baptism is something that happens at the moment of salvation. I don't believe it's got anything to do with tongues or visions or dancing or laughing or shaking or rolling around. I believe it's got to do with the operation of God whereby He baptizes us into the body of Jesus Christ. By one spirit are you baptized into the body of Jesus Christ, Paul said. And I believe he does this because he went to the cross of Calvary, paid our sin debt, took our sin upon himself, exhausted the wrath of God with his righteousness, went to heaven on high, took his blood, placed it at the mercy seat, and purchased gifts for all men. 
What are those gifts? They're the gifts of the Spirit of God, which is the earnest of our redemption. He's the purchase price. You know what earnest money is. Young people don't know what earnest money is. Uh, but, but, but older folks, they know what earnest money is down payment. It's something you pay to show you got a little bit more to back that up. The Spirit of God is the earnest of our redemption. He's a little taste of heaven in born and indwelling within every believer from the moment of salvation when they call upon the Lord. And He is the proof that God has a vested interest in us, that He's bought us, that He's paid for us, that He's paid the price for our sins. What know ye not? That ye are not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit. Why? Because your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost who is of God and whose ye are. We've been bought with a price. And the Spirit of God takes up residence in our hearts. We're baptized into the body of Christ by the Spirit of God. And He is the earnest of our redemption. John said, I can baptize you with water, but I don't have what it takes to pay the price to get that Holy Ghost. But there's one coming after me, and He's perfect, and He's sinless, and He's righteous. And when His blood is applied to the mercy seat, He can secure the Spirit of God for every single believer. And when He does, He'll baptize you into the body of Christ and He'll give to every believer the gift of the Holy Ghost indwelling within them. So what does that have to do with what Luke said? Because the cross, don't you understand, is the realization of what the angel said. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace, goodwill towards men. How does God both gain glory in the highest and be able to deal with and, and, and communicate with mankind through peace and goodwill. Don't you know that Paul said uh, that those that are not born again, that, or James said that those that are not born again, uh, that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Don't you know that Paul said that when we were yet enemies, God hath reconciled us unto Himself by the sacrifice of His Son. The lost person, uh, it, it don't just not have anything to do with God. The lost person is positionally an enemy of God. So how can God treat us with goodwill? How can God have peace with us? Hey, we have, through Him, we have peace in Jesus Christ. He's the Prince of Peace. He's made peace and reconciled us unto God. I find in this passage, the preacher girded in camel's hairs, and John's message was in many ways the same as the shepherd's message. But I find one more thing, and I'll be done this morning. I find also the participation of the Godhead. Mark doesn't go very many verses... Before he says in verse 9, came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, was baptized of John in Jordan. Straightway coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens open and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. There came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen, I, I, and I'll just be honest with you, I don't know how folks that deny the Trinity, I don't know what they do with this passage. I don't know what they do with it. There's all sorts of various ways to deny the, the Trinity. There's partialism and modalism, all kinds of theological names. There's oneness Pentecostal that believe it's just different manifestations of Jesus. I don't know what you do with this passage if you believe that. Because here we find each person of the Godhead taking active part in the origin, in the initiation, in the beginning of the public ministry of Jesus Christ. And you know, if we look in the Christmas story, we'll find all three of them present there as well. Notice, first thing that we can't help but see is the Son and His duty. 
It's interesting that Jesus comes to John to be baptized. It, it, it's not only interesting to me, evidently it was interesting to John. <laughs> because when Matthew tells this same story, the Bible says John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? Now remember, John's baptizing people that are sinners. John's baptizing people that have come because they're admitting they're rotten and low down and, 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 and they're just dogs, they ain't worth nothing, and they need to be forgiven of their sins, and they're turning from their life of wickedness and placing their faith in the God of Israel. Then here comes Jesus, and he says, All right, John, I want you to baptize me. Now you and I, we'd be just as shocked, and we'd say, Lord, I, why? For what purpose? Am I to baptize you? Jesus replies and says this in Matthew chapter number 3, verse 15. Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. Why was Jesus baptized of John? Not because he was a sinner. Not because he needed forgiveness. Not because he was turning from his old life but because you and I need to do all those things. The Bible says, though he was a son, yet learned he obedience through the things which he suffered. The Bible says that through his suffering, God made the captain of our salvation perfect. It doesn't mean morally perfect. It means ministerially perfect. In other words, Jesus is the forerunner. You remember that the Hebrews writer said that? He's the forerunner. Just like Melchizedek, Jesus is the forerunner. And He entereth into the veil before us. Peter said that Christ has left us an example that we should follow in His steps. You say, why is it that Jesus was baptized in the river of Jordan? Because He was giving an example to all those around Him and to you and I that we need to repent from our sins and place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If he is to be the forerunner, then he had to go through those waters just as surely as he had to go through Calvary. So here's what it all boils down to. You find the Son of God doing something, not because it was necessarily uh, effectually necessary, not, not because it was something that had to experientially take place, but because it was his divinely mandated duty and responsibility. We find the same spirit behind the Incarnation. Jesus Christ was robed in flesh, not because He deserved to be robed in flesh, not because for Him to become God or become more God or attain His rightful place as God that He had to do so, but He did so out of obedience. I already quoted it once, but let me quote it again. Philippians chapter 2, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. There wasn't nothing inappropriate about Him dwelling co-eternal, co-existent, co-glorious, co-effective and efficient with the Father. Nothing inappropriate about that at all. But His duty was to come to this earth to be made a sacrifice for you and I, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a servant. And the Bible says he became obedient, uh, uh, even unto death, the death of the cross. He did that not because it added to him anything, but because it added to us everything. It was his duty. And we find the son being obedient to his duty. We find not only the son and his duty, but we find the spirit in the likeness of a dove coming down and blessing and sanctioning the earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we know that the Spirit of God had a key part in the 
birth of Christ because the Bible says that the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee and thou shalt conceive and bear a child. The Holy Ghost of God was the supernatural means through which the person of Christ was placed within that holy thing that lived within Mary. He was the... How do I say it just right? He was the efficacious ministration of God's providence in that situation. He was the means through which the miracle took place. You know what I find interesting? I remember hearing somebody say one time, and they meant well, I know they did, but a Sunday school teacher was talking about how when Jesus was a little boy, he probably went around and did wonderful things and did miracles. He probably healed little birds' broken wings and, and, and probably healed little puppies that had thorns in their paws. And that's a good thought, and it probably is going to look great on your precious memories calendar. But I hate to tell you, your theology's off. Because the book of John says in chapter number 2, whenever Jesus turned the water into wine at Cana, this beginning of miracles did Jesus Christ at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. And you say, preacher, what does that mean? It means this, that Christ never performed a miracle until after the Spirit of God descended upon Him in the likeness of a dove. Why did He do this? Was He any less God? No, He was God from the womb, from before the womb. He uh, He could have done anything He wished the entire time. But he waited until it was sanctioned by the Spirit of God. Why? Because you and I, if we're ever going to do anything, it's going to have to be sanctioned by the Spirit of God. It took the comprehensive participation of the Godhead that the ministry of Christ might commence there at the River Jordan. It's interesting, the Bible says he came in the likeness of a dove. I think this suggests two things. One, it suggests the humility of Christ's ministry in earthly life. The dove, and you'll find them described in different ways in the Bible, but often in the Old Testament they're called turtle doves. And a turtle dove was the sacrifice of the poor person. The person that couldn't afford a lamb, the person that couldn't afford a bullock, the person that couldn't afford any other kind of sacrifice, they could go if they was poor and purchase turtle doves and sacrifice those. In fact, that's what Mary and Joseph would do just eight days later because they were poor. They went and purchased turtle doves and sacrificed those uh, as the gift unto the Lord because of the birth of Christ. So the dove is a picture to us of humility. And never was there a humility so impeccable, so divine, so so mighty as that of the Lord Jesus. Then I think it also speaks to us of the holiness of His earthly ministry. There's another place where the dove features prominently in Scripture, and it's in the book of Genesis. Whenever uh, God commanded Noah to build an ark and said that He would pour out His judgment upon the world in the form of a universal flood. Let me just go on record saying I believe that happened. I believe it happened just the way God said it did, and that don't upset me, that don't offend my academic sensibilities in any way, shape, fashion, or form. He's God and He can do anything He wants to do. And after that Noah had been in the ark... And the waters began to recede. The Bible says that he sent a dove out of the ark. And that dove went out and brought back first an olive branch. And there's a lot of prophetic significance, dispensational significance. But the second time he sent that dove out, it never came back. As far as Scripture is concerned, that dove left out and never set down the sole of his foot anywhere. And we come over to the New Testament and we find a dove sitting down upon the Lord Jesus. 
The idea behind sending out that dove was this, that that dove was a clean burden. It wouldn't set his foot down on anything unclean. There'd be all manner of refuse and carcasses and death and, and, and nastiness floating around those floodwaters. And so that dove flies out and he must have found somewhere clean to set his foot down on. And as far as the narrative of Scripture is concerned, the next time we see a dove lighting down and setting his foot on anything is in Matthew chapter number 3 when he sets his foot down on the Son of God. I know that dove probably went somewhere, lived, died, did whatever doves do for the rest of his life, and then died. Probably some hillbilly put some lead in him. Amen? I understand that. But I think in the, in the typology of Scripture, it's interesting that that dove left and must have found somewhere clean to put its foot. And we never see it again. And you come over to Matthew chapter 3, and the Spirit of God could have descended in the likeness of anything but He descended in the likeness of a dove. I think it's God letting us in on the fact that whenever the Holy Ghost sat down on Jesus, just like that dove, it was sitting down on a clean, holy, righteous person. Then we find one final person. We see the Son in His duty. We see the Spirit in the likeness of a dove. But then we see the Father in His declaration. Verse 11, the Bible says, There came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He declares three things. One, he declares the divinity of the Son. He says, this is my beloved Son. This is my likeness in flesh. Uh, there's, by the way, three quotes hinted at here. Whenever it says that in the Old Testament, and this is why it says in other places when it testifies of this, that the voice said, as it is written. Because in the Old Testament, you'll find these phrases. In Psalms chapter 2 and verse 7, the Bible says, I will declare the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. And that's speaking of the Messiah that would come to redeem man from his sins. So when he says, this is my beloved son, he's speaking of the divinity of Christ. Then he speaks also of his affinity for his son. He said, it's my beloved son. We can't help but think of what the Bible says in Genesis 22 two about about Isaac and Abraham, when God said to Abraham, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest. The Father was declaring that Jesus Christ was a son, apart from any of us as sons of God. He was the only begotten of the Father. Then we see in this phrase, it says, Thou art my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. We see the sufficiency of the son declared. Isaiah 42, 1 says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect, that we talked about earlier, in whom my soul delighteth. There's only one that ever really pleased God in the way that God deserves to be pleased. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. What do I do with all that, preacher? Well, if you're lost, I suggest that you turn from yourself and your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ today. He is the only one that can save you from your sins. And if you're here and you say, Preacher, I know that I'm saved, but I ain't been living the way that I ought to. Well, let me just say this. He's worthy of your life. And He's worthy of your love. And He's worthy of your labor. And what you ought to do, if nothing else, is lay yourself on that altar and say, Lord, I belong to you. If you'd do all that for me, then there's nothing that'd be too much for you to ask of me. I'll do whatever you ask of my life. 